It's Wednesday, June 7th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I thought when everything was sepia toned, it was supposed to make you feel nostalgic. But when I look at the sky, that is not the feeling I get. I do not want to ever look back on this day and just get lost in reverie. As South Park taught us, blame Canada. First they gave us Michael Buble, now this. I don't know, is this like a Justin Bieber hostage situation? Well, give him back. After the headline, Alberta fires, the only words I want to see are Chris licked. I mean, that was pretty much cause and effect, right? Now, I know these fires aren't the Alberta fires, the ones that are causing trouble breathing from Boston to St. Louis. The Alberta fires were last week. I kind of did dismiss them. And now Canada and fire is getting its revenge on all of us. Let me... I don't know, maybe you're living in the Southwest or somewhere far away from this. So let me give you a sense of the visibility in New York City right now. Okay, you ready? You see it? You didn't see anything? Exactly. That is how bad it is. Breathing now comes with a mesquite flavor. I do wonder, is this whole thing an ad for the metaverse? I mean, at this moment, how much would you pay for a world where the skies are actually blue? How much of a dork would you risk looking like? Good news, no one can see you through the haze. Just asking, did anyone recently spot Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg camping outside Quebec? The temperature, this is true, this is actually true. Very late night host thing saying, this is true, this part is true. The temperature, the outside temperature, actually declined midday because the density of the smoke limited solar radiation. Right when, right when it should be hottest, it dropped from the mid-70s to the 60s here in the New York, New Jersey area because the sun couldn't get in. That is wild, and that is fire, and that is wildfire. And notice it's the exact reverse of the usual order of worry. Where there's smoke, there's fire. We're supposed to be worried about the fire. Now it's like, oh my God, fire. Oh, that means smoke. Yeah, there's fire in Canada and smoke in America, which is really the important thing, isn't it? And to my Canadian friends, just this one last piece of advice, take it in the spirit in which it's intended. The candlelight vigil for Gordon Lightfoot has gone on long enough, people. Time to stop. On the show today, propping up the zombie Biden. But first, the Supreme Court is winding down their year. We will see some important rulings coming down within the next couple of weeks. This is the right time to have a conversation about the docket, and also to take a step back and look more wholly at this institution that has so much power and whose work seems shrouded in the blackness that the judges themselves don. Michael Waldman is out with a new book, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Waldman is an attorney, head of NYU's Brennan Center, former Bill Clinton speechwriter, and he is also up next. The Supreme Court is making rulings left and right, but they're more right than left. This is no doubt a consequence of how the court was constructed and how the court has operated, which has changed over time. An historical and contemporary account of the court is put forth by Michael Waldman in the new book, The Supermajority, The Year the Supreme Court Divided America, 
Michael Waldman was a former speechwriter for Bill Clinton. He's now the CEO of the Brennan Center at NYU School of Law. He joins me. Thanks for coming on The Gist. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. So the Supreme Court is broken, you say, and have argued. But when did it break? Well, it's constructed in a way that's pretty unusual in our system. Uh, we now accept it as a given that every June we'll sit around and wait for nine unelected people to um, to make these big rulings and sort of tell us what kind of country we're going to have. Uh, that role for the Supreme Court evolved only over the course of time. And throughout the country's history, most of the time, the court pretty much hugs the middle. It, it it reflects whatever the political consensus is of the time in which it's operating. And that makes sense because it doesn't have an army. Uh, it, it is uh, response to all of us to follow its rulings. When the court, though, has been extreme or partisan or unduly activist, when it's overreached, there's been a significant backlash. That's happened a few times in history, and I think it's happening now. Um, right now, we've got a six to three supermajority uh, of very conservative justices who are most of the time in significant ways operating as part of a kind of a political machine. Um, and I think that that is part, at least, of why the court's public support and credibility is plummeting. All six of the justices are, what well, I want to use your exact phrase, very conservative, you say? Uh, of the six uh, of the six that are in the supermajority, uh, that's, that's right. You don't really have a lot of people making surprising rulings or sort of um, uh, playing the role of the swing voter the way that um, somebody like Sandra Day O'Connor used to. Sometimes you do with Chief Justice John Roberts, but only some of the time. And the, yeah. and the I'm others, very surprised that you would call Roberts very conservative. And as I think not of Alito or Thomas and probably Barrett, but it seems like Kavanaugh and Gorsuch have done things that wouldn't be called very conservative, just conservative. The fruits of a conservative president appointing a justice and confirmed by a more or less conservative Senate. Well, some of the things that's true and somebody like Gorsuch has, you know, idiosyncratic views on issues like criminal justice, where he can sometimes find common ground with mm -hmm. uh, Justice Sotomayor, you know, and yeah, yeah. standing or up Native Americans. Yeah. But uh, John Roberts is very conservative. He has just up until now been very canny about trying to steer the court to the right, but be pretty attentive to public opinion, public reputation and public credibility. Um, and he he is, in a sense, no longer has the power over the court that we sometimes think of chief justices having, although the chief justice is only one of nine and and uh, their, their actual personal power is somewhat limited. In a lot of ways, Thomas, uh, Clarence Thomas has more of the gavel uh, than than Roberts. The one thing I will say about Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, is that while he has been um, attentive to trying to be minimalist in some ways uh, in the court, for example, a decade ago voting to uphold the, the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare, um, on one very key set of issues, he has been as aggressive 
and political uh, as, as any of them, and that is on the law of democracy, on voting rights, on campaign finance, and things like that. So, uh, you know, on, on most of the things that matter, my book looks in particular at three cases in the last three days of the term last year, um, in June of 2022. They crammed decades of social policy into those three days. And the, mm-hmm. there were three cases. The first was uh, the Bruin case, which was by far the most sweeping and I would say radical Second Amendment case in the country's history. The second was Dobbs, which as you and your listeners probably know, overturned Roe v. Wade and and uh, Casey and the right to abortion rights that had been on the books for half a century, but also put at risk a lot of the other privacy rights. And the third case, in the third day, gets less attention. It's called West Virginia versus EPA. Um, and and Roberts did not march with the other conservative justices on the abortion case, um, but he certainly did on the other two. So he's he's in there. He he, but he's he at least quite clearly pays attention to the credibility of the court, whereas the other ones say, oh, listening to the public caring about our credibility, that that's uh, that's inappropriate. That's f- sort of for wimps. We don't we don't yeah. do that. And in fact, Justice Thomas pines for these the pre Roberts days, maybe not exactly <laughs> with that phrase, but he, does. he doesn't seem to be a big fan of Roberts, <laughs> to be yeah. precise. I mean, that one of the things that's striking about the months leading up to those three rulings is they were at each other's throats in public. And you had all these really um, unusual disruptive things like the leak of the Dobbs opinion, the the uh, uh, attempted assassination of one of the justices, um, the uh, yeah. clear recognition that Jenny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, was very involved in the January 6th um uh, you know, movement leading up to the insurrection. And, and Thomas publicly said, well, we were, this was a great place to work until he basically said, till John Roberts became chief justice. But it was a very tumultuous time. So, I mean, you do acknowledge that there were times where current liberals celebrate, times around the Brown versus Board of Education ruling, where the court was acting quite like this current court was acting in ways that were just, uh, when you put them against the gauge of public opinion, would often go against it. Now, it was striking, it led the way, but it was uh, it was a bold court acting oftentimes not exactly in keeping with public opinion. So why was that court right and this court wrong? Well, in the book, I talk about three other times when the court was activist or overreaching and where there was a big backlash. And the first of them is is the Dred Scott ruling, which said slavery was national, uh, not limited to the South in effect, and that black people had no rights. And the backlash to that was so severe, it led to the election of Abraham Lincoln as president and and the coming on of the Civil War. The second time was in the early 20th century when the justices of that time saw their job as being in a very ideological way to stop government from regulating uh, workplace conditions, wages and hours at a time of great industrialization. And the third time, you're right, uh, is the period that is regarded by so many as the high point of the court's leadership, which was the Warren Court. The Warren Court began, and it's called that because Earl Warren was the chief justice, appointed by Dwight Eisenhower. Um, It began with Brown versus Board of Education. 
And that was an example where it was something that actually was desired by most of the country, but the white political structure of the South wouldn't budge. And where in that instance, and it was a big deal at the time, the court stepped in and, and undid the the whole uh, educational system of the South um, in 1954. It's, in, it's interesting and important to note that even though this was a really big moment in sort of saying, well, there's national rights and it shouldn't matter where you live. It wasn't 10 years ago, only 3% of black students were in integrated schools in the South. It wasn't until Congress stepped in, until the democratically elected branches stepped in after the protests, after the civil rights movement with the Civil Rights Act and other laws, that you really started to see an end to segregation. But uh, it, it, so interestingly, as I learned in researching the book, Brown was popular outside of, of, uh, outside of those parts of the South. But a lot of the rulings later in the Warren Court um, they came in such fast and furious fashion, right. culminating with actually after Warren had left the court and passed away, uh, the court basically putting a moratorium on the death penalty, Roe v. Wade and other things that were ahead of where the country was. And it's not right. that Gideon I versus Wainwright and Miranda yeah, rights and, and prisoner rights and voting rights. And yeah, and, these and very progressive. These, and, uh, and, and, and I think these were great rulings, or I certainly think the policies were great, but there's just no doubt that we're living in the backlash. And right. so it raises the question uh, of, you know, when is it best to have change made through the political process versus this instinct that liberals back then developed, that it's taken a long time for liberals to shed of, well, we see a problem, let's go to the courthouse. So a couple weeks ago, you tweeted, one year ago, a young man devoted to white supremacy murdered 10 black people in Buffalo. So this would be May 14th. We mourn their loss. In the year since, there's been an appalling wave of mass shootings across the country. Yes, it depends on how you uh, define mass shootings, but there's certainly been a lot of them. Details differ. They have one thing in common, the ease of buying weapons of war. So right there, I'd quibble. I don't think most mass shootings, depending on how you define them, or if they have one thing in common, I don't think all mass shootings, I know all mass shootings weren't done by semi-automatics, but let's go on because the next part that I find really intriguing. We're not the only country with racism, mental illness, toxic young men, hateful rhetoric, et cetera, et cetera. I agree with that. We are the only country with more guns than people. I think that maybe Yemen, but yes, of, of among the countries uh, in the OECD. For that- Countries without right? an active civil war on, right. going on. <laughs> okay, yeah, Sudan might have some too. They're not doing good counts, by the way, there either. For that, blame a broken political system and now an extreme SCOTUS, uh, Supreme Court. But wait a minute. Most of the murders in America, 99% of them, are not done with weapons of war. So how, and, and also as we established, SCOTUS hasn't disallowed, ruled unconstitutional any laws about weapons of war, though we talked about how they might. Is this legal analysis or is this uh, rhetoric which paired with a bit of legal analysis, trying to move the ball on an issue that you feel and I feel very passionate about. So, you know, as you read correctly, um, it's a broken political system and now an extreme SCOTUS. Um, up until now, uh, the courts were not striking down these laws by and large, but you had, because of the filibuster in the Senate, uh, even very necessary and very popular 
legislation on guns blocked. So right after the Sandy Hook shootings, um, uh, which was around the time that, that my book on the Second Amendment was published, Joe Manchin, uh, who's a Democrat, and Toomey of Pennsylvania, who's a Republican, had legislation for background checks. It had the support and still does of close to 90% of the public and had a majority of the Senate and it was blocked by the filibuster. Um, we have uh, a, a political system that now hypercharges the power of minorities in Congress. And you also have, um, this is where there's sort of a feedback loop because of the some of the rulings made by the Supreme Court on money and politics in particular, you have massive amounts of dark money flooding into elections, especially in political primaries, where incumbents who are gerrymandered in their district, they're not really terribly worried about facing the electorate. They're worried about having somebody in their primary come after them. And they now have to face the prospect of millions of dollars coming after them in these primaries. And so you've had a paralysis around doing anything about these various things. And this is at the state level, too, in different ways, but especially at the federal level. All that's true up until the Bruin case. The Bruin case is the new, somewhat radical, I would say, ingredient. Even at a time when the NRA is not the political powerhouse it once was, and where the number of people who own guns is shrinking, even as the number of guns is growing, um, the court is now striking down potentially dozens and dozens of laws passed by the political process over the years in states and nationally. If they do it, we'll see. But the, the omens are not good. So I think the combination of the logjam in Congress and, you know, the filibuster is not in the Constitution and until very recently was not used on things like gun laws. It was, you know, only recently has there been this notion that you need 60 votes to do anything. Um, and uh, and this very radical court combining could change the country in significant ways going forward on this issue. So for that blame, a broken political system up to this point is what you're saying. And Mostly, now yeah. and going forward, an extreme SCOTUS is not going to help. And, and, and I also think uh, that the way we do appointments to the Supreme Court is part of the broken political system in that. It's so political, it's so polarized, it's so toxic. And in the case of um, in the case of at least one and arguably two of the justices that Trump appointed, um, you know, as you remember, in 2016, at the beginning of the year, Justice Scalia died, Obama made an appointment of a moderate judge for the job, Merrick Garland. Um, and Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans just said, oh, we're never going to consider it. And this had not happened in well over a century. This was not sort of the way it's always done. Um, and so it's sort of the, the kind of very hardball partisan politics to get this court to where it's at. It, it didn't just sort of happen. Another way to look at it, and this is, it's an interesting thing. And it's, it, it's important to note when I say this, that this is a... Um, is an empirical statement rather than a, 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 a partisan statement. One party, the Democrats in this case, has won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the longest winning streak in the country's history for one party in the popular vote. But the other party has appointed six of the nine justices. 
And so you have kind of the country moving in one direction and the court moving in another direction, and that creates a potential crisis of legitimacy right there. If if that that doesn't seem to me like the kind of thing that can be sustained over the long term. Yes, but when I asked Stephen Vladek about it, he said that does not raise legitimacy questions because that's the Constitution. The popular vote has nothing to do with how we elect the president. And there are other, he didn't say this, but I'll add this, there are many other gauges of public sentiment, like if you look at all the state legislatures, um, that would indicate that Republicans win more votes in general over that time. Yeah, well, the, except the state legislatures don't pick the Supreme Court justices. The, no, but the, the Senate, Senate confirms the, the Senate does, and the Senate has won more, not more votes because, you know, of how California and Wyoming differ, but there are more Republican senators during that time. Well, uh, the, interestingly, the Democrats controlled the Senate for most of the last half century, but the last time there was a Democrat, this is not Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell didn't do all this you know, last week. It's just an interesting fact that the last time a Dem- the Democrats and Republicans have split control of the White House pretty evenly for the last half century, and Democrats have had control of the Senate more than Republicans, I believe. Um, but the last time there was a majority of justices appointed by a Democratic president was in 1970. Hmm. Um, some of that's just bad luck. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it is an interesting fact that this is a kind of a fundamentally conservative institution. But now back then, the parties didn't line up so directly with people's political philosophy. It it didn't mean the same thing. But nowadays, of course, parties do line up with political philosophy. And when one party, for whatever reason, has a kind of a grip on the on the institution, that's pretty significant. I don't know if that's what Professor Vladek said. uh, That to me is not right in the sense that we have elected the president with the popular vote for well over a century. The Electoral College was an afterthought. It had followed the popular vote since the mid-1800s. Only in the last 20 years has there been this misfire where it's happened twice, of course, in 2000 and in 2016, and it almost happened in 2004 uh, when John Kerry was almost elected president, even though George W. Bush handily won the popular vote um, if a few thousand votes in Ohio had shifted. And so that, you know, doesn't just benefit one party or another. So I don't, I personally don't accept the idea that the electoral college, that the voters don't have any say in who gets to be president. That, that is a new, newfangled and bad idea, in my view. So you are a law expert. You run the Brennan Center at NYU, but you're also a speechwriter. So you understand political communication. Is there a phrasing or framing for all of this that we've been talking about that you think will break through? Or do you think it's just going to take rulings? The rulings themselves will be ipso facto legal term appalling to people. And that will create the backlash that you talk about as having happened when the court has been so uh, untethered from where society is. It's a great question. As you can imagine, it's something I think about a lot. Um, Right now, I think people focus on the rulings. They get the idea that the court is extreme. They get the idea that it's political. I don't think there's one phrasing yet anyway um, that uh, is so damning that people hear it and they say, oh, that's illegitimate. You know, some people talk about it being a MAGA Supreme Court, which in in a way it is, in that three of the justices were appointed by Trump. But I think that the, the notion of the court being extreme and political, I think people get that. 
Um, but I think it would be a good idea, broadly speaking, and for those who are concerned about the court, to have a serious political project of not shying away from taking it on, describing it, discussing it. You know, after the Warren court, Richard Nixon ran talking about wanting strict constructionist justices and, and Ronald Reagan's justice department launched the idea of originalism. Um, and, and all of that was to say that those were just liberal judges imposing their own political views. Uh, and, and then that's all it was. And I think, you know, for many years, conservatives have taken the court very seriously. They've taken the Constitution very seriously. Liberals, progressives really have not. And you certainly, for example, haven't heard President Biden talking about the court, even after these rulings, in a way that, you know, I suspect a, a Republican president under similar circumstances would have. I think it's important that that change. I think it's important that people talk about this uh, as a central political issue going forward, just like Lincoln did, just like Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt did. You don't want to mess with those Roosevelt boys. And just like conservatives did in taking on the courts on opinions they didn't like. You know, the Supreme Court, they're not wizards, even though they wear robes. They're not a religious body. They're government officials with a lot of power. And it's totally, in my view, legitimate and appropriate to take them on politically. Michael Waldman is president and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, and he is the author of The Supermajority, The Year the Supreme Court Divided America. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Michael Waldman and I talked for almost an hour about SCOTUS. If you want to hear just about all of it, become a PESCA Plus member. You have to stay inside anyway with all this smoke. This is your third of three days of bonus episodes to give you a sense, a big sense, a healthy dollop of what Pesca Plus listeners get. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. If you don't want to take the full plunge, if you're like, you know, I don't want more gist. I'd like a little less of some of the stuff that's not so relevant to me. We have an ad-free version as well. And the Pesca Plus subscription also takes out all the ads. So that's at subscribe.mikepesca.com. And the money goes straight to us at the gist. And maybe we'll set a little aside to help Clarence Thomas buy a super yacht someday. And now the spiel. Joe Biden has been the inspiration for more videos of people falling down than the entire 384-year run of America's Funniest Home Videos. Joe Biden takes on more physical challenges than the combined contestant core of Double Dare, Super Sloppy Double Dare, Family Double Dare, and Double Dare 2000. The speech of the president is more bedeviled by syntax than a three-pack-a-day smoker. And still, he somehow delivered on the debt ceiling ushered in the Infrastructure Act, signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, and, really important, secured nation-saving funding and support for Ukraine while holding together the Western coalition and staving off the isolation instinct in America. But then he goes and says, not for the first time, or second or third, that his son died fighting in Iraq when his son, Bo Biden, did not die fighting in Iraq. Just imagine, I mean it sincerely, I say this as a father of a man who won the Broad Star, the Conspicuous Service Medal, and lost his life in Iraq. Curious, right? 
Well, I have a strategy for those who recognize that the Biden presidency has had some genuine accomplishments while the Biden persona has taken a hit and the Biden person has, to be fair, lost a few miles from the old Scranton slider. And yet, the criticism of Joe Biden among many Republicans has been absolutely unrestrained by taste, kindness, or fact. Within the Republican firmament, this question is often asked. Do you think Joe Biden is actually running this? I mean, we've talked before about his capacity. You're a doctor. Uh, Do you think he's in charge or somebody else? That's Maria Bartiromo on Fox asked and answered. I don't think he has any real control over what's going on right now. I think that he's just being told what to do. I honestly do. That is Representative Ronnie Jackson. And his isn't a unique sentiment. They allege that Joe Biden is not making his own decisions, or that he is the tool of some unseen force, usually the far left, if the concern is being voiced by someone on the far right. But it's not only extremists with a megaphone saying so. Dave Weigel of Semaphore chronicled this. What we're talking about when we talk about Biden's age was the recent column. Quote, criticism of Biden on the right, dating back to 2020, that's important, remember that, usually portrays him as not running things. It's politically convenient. Sure, Biden might code as centrist on the surface, the argument goes, but it's the young AOC fans on his staff who are passing giant stimulus bills that drive up inflation or appointing progressives to run the government. For the record, AOC voted against Biden's infrastructure bill and the debt ceiling deal. I guess they would say, oh, that's all just convenient cover. But my purpose here is not to contrast Biden's accomplishments with his poor communication or declining communication style or his ambulatory ability. My purpose is not to say, no, 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 there's nothing to be seen there. My point is in no way a rebuttal to the idea that Biden has experienced some cognitive decline. If you want to have some credibility, you got to admit that. But if certain figures on the right want to worry that Biden's a puppet or that Biden's a meat suit being operated by a Svengali or that zombie Biden is being controlled by some offstage guru already right now, good. Let him say that. Then we know what we're getting. Team Biden, whoever they all are is doing a fine, fine job. Republican presidential candidate and techish outsider with impressive patter, Vivek Ramaswamy, a.k.a. Andrew Harang. I don't know. I'm trying to do a riff on Andrew Yang. I hope it works. So roll with me here. Anyway, a.k.a. Andrew Harang was asked by, huh, look at that, Maria Bartiromo, if it's really Joe Biden we're seeing up there, Ramaswamy said. Forget whether he's going to finish eight years. He wasn't even really the one who started the eight years. He's a front man for the managerial class. They have put him up as a puppet that they can control. Okay. So Weekend at Bernie Presidential Edition has been going on, it's been going on for a while. All right, it is different from them saying, look, in the first term, Biden's just barely holding on. You gotta worry about the second term, he might lose it totally. It's a different argument, but it's a better argument if you don't mind what Biden's been doing. Of course, the Republicans have to be maximally extreme, and so they make a pretty bad argument when you think about it. So I say, let them make that he's already a zombie argument and counter, well, the entire apparatus, whatever that is, seems to be delivering pretty well. And what's interesting, by the way, is that the puppet masters really do seem more or less aligned with Biden's natural tendency to make deals. Josh Barrow and Matt Iglesias made an excellent point of this the other day. Obama used to want to try to tell the Republicans why they were wrong. Biden just wants to know what the Republican position is. And then he uses that to give them a little something of what they want. 
This way, the Democrats and America get more of what they want. That is exactly how the debt ceiling negotiation worked. If, in fact, you're a Republican who most fears the left of the Democratic Party, look who voted against the debt ceiling. There's Senators Sanders, Warren, Fetterman. They're the ones the zombie Biden is pissing off. Why couldn't it be that whoever's programming cyborg Biden, why couldn't it be that it's not the leftists, it's actually Anita Dunn or Mike Donilon or Gene Sperling, maybe Ron Klain still operating a few of the switches there. That group is the collective Andrew McCarthy and Jonathan Silverman to Biden's Bernie. I personally like what Team Puppet is pulling off. I mean, maybe when you were young, you thought Kermit the Frog was really a frog, and then you grew up and learned it was Jim Henson. Great! So you didn't love Kermit, you loved Jim Henson. So what? You were still in love. It turns out you weren't actually scared by the dinosaurs, real dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. It was just a team of modern magicians, orchestrated by Spielberg, executed by Industrial Lights and Magic, and so what? We signed up for the Jurassic Park sequels again and again and again. They made billions and entertained us all. The worry that Biden right now isn't fully functioning or firing on all cylinders is reassuring, if anything else. We have proof of concept that whatever's going on there delivers, delivers for Democrats and not only or not even mostly the socialist ones. In fact, those signature achievements, infrastructure, 19 Republican senators voted for it. Roy Blunt, Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham, Chuck Grassley, Lisa Murkowski, Mitch McConnell. I shall not name them all. But the zombie Biden team delivered all the Dems and 40% of the Republicans. That is a winning zombie formula. The debt ceiling had even more Republicans signing on. So they think, the people who allege zombieism, that they are calling out a horror movie or maybe a marionette performance. In fact, it's really a glorious collaboration. It's a piece of magic. It's like a breathtaking Pixar film that depends on the willing, nay, gleeful suspension of disbelief. We pay $300 to see The Lion King on Broadway. After 10 minutes, you stop seeing the puppeteers and you settle in for transporting theater. They think they're hitting him with a disqualifying accusation. They're really spelling out a pretty decent rationale for using the past as prologue and arguing for four more years. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, senior producer Joel Patterson, or are they? Might there be someone operating behind the throne? Chief Svengali officer of The Gist. No, let's go with Lobstar. Right, that's it. She doesn't know how to program a cyborg. It's Michelle Pesca. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening. The great Oz has spoken. Oh, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain.